0: Welcome to the History of European Theatre Podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 60. Just for fun. The Medieval Secular Theatre. Last time, every man took us to the personalised view of the fate of mankind as seen within the framework of the medieval mindset. The impression after three episodes on morality plays might be that medieval men and women never had any fun and lived their lives in the fear of God and the impossibility of securing eternal life. And undoubtedly, that was a big part of their lives. But we all like a laugh and some fun to one degree or another. And we have proof of that from the Greek theatre onward. And I think that that shows that human nature hasn't changed so much throughout history and that humour and fun must have played a part in medieval life. Indeed, it's surely arguable that where the grind of life is very hard for most people, where they do get the chance to let go, to unwind, to enjoy themselves, then they do it to the extreme. Once again, we risk making generalizations to cover the length of the long medieval period, but for many, life was a hand to mouth existence, still governed by the successes or failures of crops and an individual's ability to remain productive in their work. There was no social security, no safety net, apart from the charity of others. An accident in the field may not mean immediate death, but it could lead very quickly to a family's starvation, or at best, to dependency on neighbors and relations. In the later period when the feudal system had developed, producing enough food or goods to satisfy your obligations to your king, your lord, and then to feeding your family, kept most people focused on the immediate needs of survival day by day. The occasional release from the daily grind was one of the ways the church could keep control. By allowing some excess on designated days in celebration of a religious figure, an event or a belief, the church could be seen to be the good guy who offered some relief from the everyday toil. We have seen how this manifested itself in the presentation of the cycle plays centered on Corpus Christi's festival, and how that became, in some cases, a lavish and extended affair. Some of that was driven by the desire to earn eternal brownie points with God, but the desire for enjoyment for its own sake was surely part of the human experience just as it is now. In fact, we know it was. For example, look at the paintings of Dutchman Peter Bruegel, the elder, who was working in the mid-16th century and you can see many images of the peasantry simply enjoying themselves. But were there forms of theatrical entertainment that were just for enjoyment and with no overt religious message or control? That question takes us back a few episodes to the celebrations The Feast of Fools, The Boy Bishops and The Feast of Asses. You'll remember that these were church-sanctioned festivals that reversed roles and let children, novice monks and deacons take control of some ecclesiastical ceremonies and generally partake in celebrations during days related to the Easter and Christmas periods. The details are in episode 50, Synods, Tropes, Asses and Fools. These festivals worked at least in part as a safety valve on society, allowing celebrations that briefly released the control and turned a blind eye to a bit of misbehaviour, or at least appeared to do that. In reality, the control was always there, and anyone who stepped too far out of line could be reprimanded in many ways, up to and including excommunication, for a serious offence on a feast day. The features of these sanctioned celebrations, particularly the reversal of roles, looked back to the ancient Roman traditions connected with the Saturnalia festival, but were also carried forward into other entertainments. The performing children and recurring use of the ass or donkey as a focus of comedy comes from these early religious festivals into a more mainstream and somewhat secular branch of entertainment. As the content of some of these activities became more and more extreme and the church elders began to push back against them, an opportunity opened for entertainments that were not under the control of the church. We have to assume that, quite simply, there was a demand and no effective way for the church to shut down every unofficial entertainment. The rise of the travelling player probably played a large part in this development. A group of like-minded people who got together to earn a living from entertaining others could operate outside the control of the church to a large degree. Troops could arrive in town and find a suitable space. The courtyard of an inn was a popular spot because there was already an audience used to meeting in this place and the only negotiation needed was with the landlord and not any civic dignitary as would have been the case where a public space was to be commandeered. With a space secured, a secure entrance established, a share of income agreed – All the troupe had to do was to announce their arrival and showtimes. A simple task achieved by sending out a player or two to call the bands through the streets. Sometimes their presentations could be one or more of the cycle plays, sometimes something a bit more daring. Something that touched on satire, with criticism of the church or the gentry, presented as jokes or skits in an early kind of sketch comedy. Exactly what was to be presented was probably a question of judgement, of gauging the mood of the town, the likelihood of the local clergy to attend, and even their attitude towards the other officially authorised performances. The Feast of Asses and the like showed that at times some of the clergy were very open to allowing some mockery of the venerable institutions. We don't have much detail on the content of the travelling player's repertoire, but it seems reasonable to think that the boundaries would have been pushed, and work with risks attached would be appreciated and maybe gain a bigger reward. But it was important to ensure that the performance wouldn't lead you into trouble. There's certainly scope for such experimentation, as the message coming from the church wasn't always consistent. In 1236, Bishop Grosseteste of Lincoln excommunicated players who took part in a performance that he considered indecent, and he forbade any true Christian to attend. This is the same bishop who protested against the Feast of Fools, and I can't help thinking that the players probably rubbed their hands with glee as they heard of his protestations, as nothing puts bums on seats like a ban on religious grounds. His contemporary, St Thomas Aquinas, was much more tolerant. He declared that actors could give solace to humanity and might, with God's dispensation, escape eternal damnation. Thomas was half a continent away from Lincoln. He was speaking about Italian actors. But it suggests that actors had to have a good handle on the local situation to know what they could and couldn't present. The travelling troupe would include players with specific skills. Juggling and acrobatics were popular, with singers and musicians being, as ever, important members of the group. Where their presence is associated with festivals, the word ludus or game crops up again in the records, suggesting that they weren't part of the official celebrations, but part of a non-religious aspect to them. Perhaps the fringe or off-broadway of their day, tolerated, may be condoned at times, and performing anything from religious plays to satiric comedy. That may have included aspects taken from the Feast of Asses and the like, and in the few examples we have, the extent of the boundary pushing sounds quite extreme. In 1384, Bishop Grandison of Exeter felt compelled to issue a ban to prohibit the antics of a travelling troupe. He said, A certain sect of malign men who wear a monkish habit chose a lunatic fellow as abbot, set him up in the theatre, blow horns, and for day and day beset in a great company the streets and places of the city, capturing laity and clergy, and extracting ransom from them in lieu of sacrifice. They call this ludus, but it is sheer rapine. Now that sounds anarchic and maybe not even what we think of as theatre bar the mention of what seems to be costumes. And how should we interpret the taking hostage of clergy and others for payment? Presumably something done with some complicity of the victim and in good humour. Names like the Lord of Misrule, the Abbot of Unreason appear in similar context, perhaps calling back to already ancient traditions. There may be some religious exaggeration at play here, but it seems that the travelling troupe were making their mark. The change that came out of aspects of religious celebrations is thought to have developed into short plays and skits that featured stock characters similar to those seen in the cycle plays. The shrewish wife, the henpecked husband, cowardly soldiers, the lazy monk are all mentioned and featured in comic playlets. These characters sound familiar both from Roman comedy and future stories and the plays of the 17th century. There may not be a direct link back to Rome, but these secular plays first emerged in France and other ex-Roman states before coming to England, so a connection is possible. We know little of the authors of these plays, possibly many were the players themselves who developed the plays as they moved around and learnt what audiences appreciated. Where we do have some details, they're usually scant. In France, a travelling player with the surname of Roteboeuf was operating in the later 13th century. He was noted as being poor of origin, but had made a decent income as a travelling singer and poet, to the extent that he could afford a horse rather than the mule that was the usual mode of transport of his kind. He performed for local barons and took to writing plays. One of them, The Miracle of Theophile, is a religious but non biblical play concerning a priest who sells his soul to the devil for worldly benefits. It's only the intercession of the Virgin Mary that saves him from eternal damnation. But another of his plays, De Liberi, shows that he was able to switch out of the religious play and into something more farcical. We might call it a proto-farce. In the play, a quack doctor takes pleasure in revealing all of the worthless lotions and potions that he has persuaded the Sultan of Egypt to take. He's a cruel and spiteful character, reminiscent of Menander's most cunning characters, and preempts and perhaps is the basis for some of Molière's dishonest doctor characters. And still in France, we come across a character who stands out in the period. This is partly because he is one of the few individuals where we have information about his life, but also because of the secular nature of his work. Adam de la Hale was born in 1240 and died in 1287. He was also known as Adam Labassu, Adam the Hunchback. Although this is possibly a family name and not indicative of any deformity that Adam may have had, it's possible that his father was the basis of the character The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Adam, like Mr Rotterbuff, was a French trouvet, a troubadour. He was born in Arras and plied his trade there and later in Paris. He worked in a common musical style of the time, producing chansons and jeux parties. The chanson was the lyrical-driven story song that are probably your first thought when you heard the word troubadour. The lute strummed to a part-spoken, part-sung story. We have 16 of these composed by Adam that have survived. The jus parti is a more complex thing, a poetic debate between two troubadours. In the classic type, one poet poses a dilemma as a question in the opening stanza. Then his or her partner picks an opposing view in the second stanza, which replicates the style of the verse of the first stanza and is sung to the same melody. Typically, the Joupartie has six stanzas, with the two poets alternating stanza by stanza. Many Juparties also have a final partial stanza, in which one or both of the singers appoint judges, and call for the judgment of the debate that the poem to the music was presented. So, the outcome is virtually never given within the jeu itself, and would have been the subject of audience discussion after the performance. Over 200 examples of the form have survived, and Adam was one of its main exponents. That survival is largely due to a significant collection from the 13th century, the Montpellier Codex. This codex contains 336 polyphonic works, for well, that is what they are, composed between 1250 and 1300. The majority of the musical content of this codex is made up of love motets, and it's a crucial source for the study of the chronology of this style of French medieval poetry and music. However, Adam has a more direct encounter with the theatre, but first a little more of his background. His father, Henri, was a well-known citizen of Arras, and Adam studied grammar, theology and music at the Cistercian Abbey at Vaucelles near Cambrai. Father and son seem to have had their share of civil disputes in Arras, and early plans for Adam to take holy orders were abandoned. He married a lady called Marie, who features in many of his songs and Jus Parti. Afterwards, he joined the household of Robert II, Count of Artois, and then was attached to the court of Charles of Anjou, brother of Louis IX. And he traveled with him to Egypt, Syria, Palestine, and Italy. Adam's earliest play is from 1262 and appears to have been written for no other intention than to amuse his friends. Jus de la Fuye, the play of the Greensward, is a satirical fantasy based on a fairy tale and folk myth and satire of local customs and characters. It's of most interest to the theatre historian because of the character Crosset, who is a prototype Harlequin character. In this case, he's grotesque and devilish rather than cunning and mischievous, but as he runs on and asks the audience what they think of his costume and his devil's mask, well, this is very commedia dell'arte. Evidently, the play was seen by more than just his friends and upset some residents. Sources vary in the details, but the most likely story is that in 1276, Adam was about to leave Arras for his studies when he wrote a secular play, which is about a man called Adam living in Arras, who is about to go to Paris to resume his studies. The play is set outside a pub in the town, the pub outside which the play was performed. The cast includes, besides fictitious characters, his fellow townspeople, who are mentioned by name. And in the play, there are exchanges between real named people in the audience and real named people on stage. But it also includes another group of entirely non-human characters, several fairies under the lead of Morgana, a version of the character from the Arthurian legends, who has come to town to attend an ancient spring ritual. This is the element that gives the play its strange name, the play of the leafed one. The play ends with an allegory satirising, or so it seems, both the human and non-human characters. It's difficult to say whether this play belongs to the world of the costume-travelling player, or is an example of something completely new. It shows some elements of heritage from the past in its hints at the spring festival occasion, and the way it tries to marry realistic notions with fantasy. It is fantastical, but with realistic elements. Clearly it's a very personal piece based solidly on events in Adam's life, so alongside the fantasy, the reality it creates is very real. We can see that the setting was a very real place, where the performance took place. In front of the pub there's an upper window, from which a character is mentioned in the script as pouring a pitcher of wine on the head of another in the street below. Very real, very comic. Beyond this, there are suggestions of the well-known streets of Arras down which the fairies come. Very fanciful. It's all a bit off-kilter and mysterious. Magical realism is perhaps the closest modern form that it could be compared to, but what it certainly is, is secular and written for entertainment only. When Charles of Anjou became the King of Naples, Adam attended his court and, during that time, wrote the Jeux de Robin et Marion. This work is cited as the earliest French play with music on a secular subject, and some see it as the first known comic opera. It's a pastoral work which tells how Marion resisted the advances of a knight and remained faithful to Robert the Shepherd, and in itself it's a reworking of an older chanson. The jeopardy, if we can even call it that, is soon resolved, and singing and dancing ensues. It consists of a dialogue intercut with refrains already current in popular songs. The melodies to which they're set have a character of folk music, and are more spontaneous and melodious than the Jus Parti, the more elaborate of his songs. It is what would become a typical pastoral drama in the early years of the European Renaissance. So if we accept that Adam's work is the forerunner of both farce and operetta, and there is a good argument for that, it makes him out as being very well ahead of his time by several centuries. And whether Adam was merely one of a number of ingenious minds working in an early and now somewhat lost theatrical form as early as in the 13th century, or whether he was an unparalleled innovator far in advance of his time, well, for the lack of evidence, we really can't say. Perhaps more typical of the development of the short secular comedy is The Farce of the Worthy Master Pierre Patilin. This is from about 1470 and of unknown authorship. A dishonest lawyer feigns madness to avoid making a due payment to a merchant. He's then engaged to represent a shepherd accused of stealing his neighbour's sheep. His advice to the accused is simply to answer, bah, like a sheep, to every question the judge puts to him, and thereby proving that his years of sheep tending have fuddled his brain. The ploy works, and the man is acquitted. But when the solicitor comes to collect his fee, the shepherd will only reply as he did to the judge, and the solicitor walks away empty-handed. It's a short play, telling a neat joke, where the unscrupulous get their just rewards and the simple shepherd gets the better of the supposedly clever man. Again, echoes down the centuries of Menander and Plautus. Another example that works in a similar turn is The Man Who Married a Dumb Wife. When an old man marries a pretty young woman, he thinks the fact that she is mute will not be a problem. But eventually her total silence palls, and he engages a surgeon to restore her voice. To his dismay, he finds her never-ending chatter and nagging unbearable, so he pays the same doctor to make him deaf. Equilibrium is thus restored, and the marriage continues in a newly found happy state. This particular play had a life well beyond its own time, thanks to the 16th century novelist Francis Rabelais, including mention of a performance of it by travelling players in a marketplace in his novel Gargantua and Pantagruel. From there, it was picked up by Anatole France, who produced a new one-act version in 1915, and it's also been used as the basis for a ballet. In the early 1200s in France, something like a guild of comic entertainers was formed, as revelries around the Feast of Fools were extended and turned more secular. Their style was buffoonish comedy. They exchanged the priestly robes for the fool's cap and their style soon spread to performing groups within trade guilds who provided entertainment at the private meetings held by the guilds. Through these connections, between and across the guilds, this form made its way through Europe and to England. It's also about this time that the bladder on the stick became a common feature of comedy, allowing the wielder of said bladder to beat fellow performers and audience members in a comic manner. This feature also crossed into the mystery plays, with comic characters often using and carrying the same implement. If you think of the traditional image of the court jester from this period, then you're close to how these comic performers appeared. Their brightly coloured costumes still had protrusions that developed from the asses' ears that originated with the Feast of Fools and the Feast of Asses. But the skits and playlets were no longer primarily religious. They did, however, appear as curtain raisers for the more serious mystery and morality plays. Quite how these comic and possibly crude plays sat alongside the morality plays isn't clear, but they do seem to be the precursor for the farce and comedy of the late 15 and 1600s. As they travelled, the troops also performed for local lords as after banquet entertainment, and a few performed for kings and princes too. Enjoyment of their skills literally went from the highest to the lowest, and in time, lords and kings recognised an advantage in retaining players in their service. They were not only kept to provide private entertainment for their master, but at times were sent out to perform professionally at other great houses or at festivals, and thereby contributed to their upkeep and promoted their master in the meantime. In the mid-1400s, a guild of actors was created in England and recognised by King Edward IV. In 1469, he placed his own household minstrels in charge of it. Henry VII, who was a notoriously financially prudent king, had four players in his permanent staff and his son Henry VIII doubled that number and Elizabeth increased it again to 12. Both in England and on the continent, the patronage of kings and powerful landowners, who at times were effectively the kings in their immediate regions, allowed the players and burgeoning playwrights liberties that would have otherwise not been allowed but there were always limits. Councillors for Charles VIII of France had a whole troop put in prison in 1486, when a line in their play suggested that the French court was muddy water, invading the king's clear spring. They were freed after a special hearing in Parliament, but with knuckles firmly wrapped. Twenty years later, Louis XII declared that acting troops could expose any injustice and ridicule perpetrated by those who were abusing their power without fear as they could give him a truer account of his kingdom than his courtiers did. He did then add that if they said a word against his queen, he would have them all hung. And there's an early example from France of comedy and satire being used for overtly political ends. In the early 1500s, King Louis XII was involved in a serious dispute with Pope Julius II. On Shrove Tuesday, 1511, he allowed one of his favourite playwrights, Pierre Gringoire, to present a satire to which all, from the highest to the lowest, were invited. The piece had been summarised like this. The author, dressed in the petticoats of the Holy Church, disported himself for an hour or two as the warlike pontiff, who was represented as disguising unbounded hypocrisy and libertarianism under the cloak of religion, and seeking to increase his temporal power at the expense of the French, and as obtaining support amongst bishops and abbots by offering them rich benefices and other bribes. At the end, King Louis begins to suspect that his holiness is not the church, and in point of fact is only a sort of fool's mother. The play was followed by a morality in which the Pope appears as an obstinate and confessedly immoral person. Really strong stuff that clearly without sanction from the king would not have been allowed. The production was at least partially successful The French Parliament was not in favour of the King's aggressive policy towards the Pope, but did agree to pay some of the costs towards the production, signalling to the King that their position had softened. This is a single example of continental drama getting political. Generally, it was far too risky to produce a political polemic, and such pieces were wisely avoided. In England, there isn't a truly secular play we know about until 1497 when Henry Medwell, chaplain to Cardinal Morton, Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote a piece to be performed as an entertainment at the Cardinal's Christmas banquet. It concerns a Roman senator's daughter, who is loved by a noble and a plebeian. The play is a series of debates between the suitors, first involving the Senate, and then various guests at a banquet, and, although this doesn't sound promising, some critics find it clever and thoughtful, and revealing of changing social attitudes under Henry VII. Medwell is the oldest named English dramatist where we have a complete work, so he's worthy of a mention for that alone. His work was short and designed to be an entertainment. He and others also wrote short pieces in the vein of morality plays, where the aim was to bring home an easily understood moral message. But these types of plays, or playlets, were prolific and popular and became known as interludes. The form was the basic model for the court mask produced by the likes of Ben Jonson in years to come, but the interlude is a difficult thing to define precisely. They're first mentioned about 1300 with a work called The Student and the Girl, and then about 50 years later there's a reference to an interlude over the overcharging by leather workers that the Bishop of Exeter felt necessary to ban. Now unfortunately no other information about these pieces has survived. In 1425, there was an interlude performed for the king featuring a debate between a group of tradesmen and their nagging wives. The best guess is that they developed as entertainments performed between courses of a banquet, and could be moralistic, religious, or comic depending on the occasion and the guest list. An alternative suggestion is that short introductory plays were always part of the Corpus Christi setup, and from there they moved into the banqueting setting and became part of the Travelling Players Toolbag. In the later medieval period, there were writers well known for producing interludes. The most famous was John Hayward. He worked through most of the 1500s, dying in 1580, and had the advantage of being the son-in-law of a printer and parliamentarian who moved in the upper circles of the court. His works, therefore, made it into print, and his career was assisted by the likes of Chancellor Sir Thomas More. In the early years of the reign of Henry VIII, he produced polemical works in support of the king. He also wrote six plays, which have survived, which owe debts both to the morality play and to the French comedy of the time. Henry VIII's sister was married to the French king, so there was considerable cultural exchange at the time between France and England, and Hayward seems to have tempered the moralistic element of his plays under this influence. All the plays are virtually plotless, simply being debates and discussions on a moral question between different characters. Some scholars see in some interesting intellectual debate and occasional moments of wit, but there really is little else to attract interest in them today. Hayward was lauded as a poet, singer and playwright, but after Thomas More's demise and the increasing religious reforms, he was imprisoned for allegedly being involved in a plot against More's successor, Thomas Cromwell. He was imprisoned and then pardoned, but lived out his life in exile so he could retain his Catholic beliefs. He was frequently forced to move across Europe as Protestant influences caught up with him and eventually he died in Belgium. The irony is that in his plays, the priests are often shown as corrupt hypocrites and he was seen as the exponent for the Reformation. In fact, he never set out to teach, scold or persuade. He just wanted to entertain. He said that he desired not to teach, but to touch. So the shadow of the church was never far away from medieval theatre. But thanks to the protective influences of kings and other powerful men, some secular drama was possible. Occasionally we get a glimpse of something more, of someone who might be considered a truly original and creative writer. But we can't be quite sure about their intentions, their influences, or indeed their exact level of success. But we can see some beginnings that hint at what is to come. The dramatised intellectual argument is here the merging of the real and unreal, a fairy tale and myth with reality is here, and even the beginnings of introspection. Where dramatists and players could escape from the confines of religion, there was just a hint of the creativity that would soon be released. Next time I'm going to look at how commercial the theatre in the medieval period really was. How was the performance of a play valued, and how did actors manage to make a living? In the meantime, please don't forget to have a look at the website for the podcast, that's www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com, where there are some medieval-related pictures and other theatre stuff, as well as, of course, all the podcast episodes. If you'd like to support the podcast, please post a rating or even a review on Apple Podcasts or go to patreon.com for more content for a small monthly fee. You can also join the Facebook group and follow the podcast on Twitter. Any contributions go towards offsetting the cost of hosting the podcast and are gratefully received. We're getting towards the end of the medieval season now, so if you have any questions stacked up about the period, please do get in touch and I'll do my best to answer them before we come to a close on this part of theatre history. And of course, generally, if you have any questions, comments or concerns, you can always contact me by email on thotp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thotp.